Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, navigating the new normal presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society and technology, real estate and medicine, technology and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Plout. I'm the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501c3 National American Charitable Organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The hospital is a motto of coexistence as it serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission in this free public affairs program with a donation of any amount. Visit us, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, online and donate at AFRMC.org. Join us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. We depend on you, our audience's support, to help the hospital in Israel. So thank you if you can contribute any amount. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 31 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. Today's Global Connections topic is combating anti-Semitism. We thank our very special guests, Dr. Georgette Bennett, founder and president of the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding, Tamara Behrens, journalist and author, Ted Deutsch, CEO of the American Jewish Committee, and Dan Granot, Director of Government Relations at the Anti-Defamation League. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. There has been a rise in anti-Semitic incidents and hate crimes in our country. Groups that count such things say they haven't seen increases like this in decades. While most racially motivated hate crimes in America target African-Americans, more than 60% of crimes inspired by religious hatred have been directed at Jews. We may ask why this is happening, why it's taking place, but we can no longer ask whether it is taking place. The question we're posing today is, what can be done about it? What can be done to combat anti-Semitism? What is being done, and are there any new ideas at work? This year, the White House unveiled an unprecedented national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. It's an interagency effort uh, led by Douglas Emhoff, who's the husband of Vice President Kamala Harris and who's Jewish. That's one of the subjects we're going to hear a lot about in this hour from a very interesting panel. Uh, you can take part in this discussion by sending questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, uh, and we'll have a question and answer session in the second half hour, and we'll hope to, to get to some of the questions you have proposed. Our first panelist is Dan Granot, who is Director of Government Relations for the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL has been at the forefront of fighting anti-Semitism since it was founded over a century ago. As it says on its website, ADL is founded with the clear understanding that the fight against one form of prejudice cannot succeed without battling prejudice in all forms. Dan Grinnell, welcome. Thanks for joining Thank us you. Today. Thank you so much for having me today, Robert. And, and first, what, if anything, is new in the Biden administration's initiative against anti-Semitism? So it's a great question. And, you know, I think what's so historic about the plan, first off, is it's the breadth and the depth of it, right? 200 specific policy proposals for both government and civil society to be approaching with specific agencies, stakeholders, and, and I think almost most importantly, timelines, right? Timelines that we are all trying to ensure we hit within a 12-month time period, in addition to a series of commitments that ADL and others have taken uh, on top of the plan. Um, you know, but I think what's so exciting about this, you know, this is the first time we have ever seen the federal government elevate the issue of fighting anti-Semitism to the same national priority level as some of the other issues, right? And you, know, you ask what's in the plan, mm -hmm. it is unbelievably creative, right? It includes everything from, you know, 
large security, helping to ensure that our Jewish communal centers and synagogues and schools and camps are safer, to increasing access to kosher food in order to create an environment where Jews can be their true authentic selves. Yeah. Um, it takes a sort of a whole society, whole government approach, which is needed to, to adequately and, and successfully fight anti-Semitism. There are many appeals to Congress. Uh, has the strategy met with bipartisan support on Capitol Hill? Yeah, so I'm I'm very happy to say that it was welcomed in the minute or in the hour it was released by a joint bipartisan bicameral statement from the House and Senate bipartisan task forces for combating anti-Semitism. You know, the hope is that this is not President Biden's plan. This is not a Democratic plan. This is a U.S. national strategy that will, you know, will written, I think, in, in everyone's hopes and everyone's minds, uh, live on beyond any single administration in order to ensure that we are continually successfully fighting this problem. I want to note that the ADL uh, is currently engaged in a very high-profile spat with Elon Musk. Uh, ADL wants Musk to restore guidelines that would uh, 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 keep hate speech off of X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, Musk is threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League for defamation, uh, claiming that its criticisms have cost him billions in advertising. Uh, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, uh, spoke about uh, this with the Israeli newspaper Haaretz ha uh, the other day. Uh, and uh, when speaking about Musk's embrace of the campaign hashtag ban the ADL, uh, Greenblatt said this about Musk and them. He said, the most followed Twitter user on the planet is elevating some of their hateful talking points, like the claim that ADL is responsible for anti-Semitism. Uh, this is the kind of hate that has been turned against our people uh, for centuries. The Jews are responsible for their own misery. Um, Dan Grenot, I know that uh, because Musk is threatening litigation in a very uh, big way, uh, only Jonathan Greenblatt speaks about this for the ADL. But I, I want to ask you more broadly, uh, how important is social media uh, to the, the effort to counter anti-Semitism in America? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, ADL has been addressing online hate since since before, but especially since we formed our Center of Te on Technology and Society, or CTS. Um, and, you know, this, this is a, criti a critical component in the fight against anti-Semitism. Hate and harassment online is just propagating in a way that we've never really seen before. Hateful content on social media platforms um, is oftentimes not being pulled down, and it's allowing this content to become mainstream and normalized and, and become more accepted amongst younger generations. Um, at ADL, we developed something called our repair plan. This is our legislative solution to fighting uh, online hate um, and includes such things as reforming Section 230 or creating batch reporting so a user can uh, report multiple harmful comments at once. So it's not just you know, mm -hmm. someone being taken over, uh, whether it is, um, you know, implementing different strategies that ADL views as tools uh, to prevent this hate from propagating in the first place uh, and creating a, a safe environment for us to all exist online. I, I quoted from ADL's own description of its of its mission that uh, the fight against one form of prejudice can't succeed without battling prejudice in all forms. Some people would say that's that's a it's a that's a very fine, nice idea, but uh, it's this one specific form of prejudice, the one against Jews, that's on the rise. Uh, with its unique features that disturb me right now. And while, say, uh, the issues raised by trans kids in high school sports may may prick the conscience and, and uh, may be important, it, it risks diluting the effort, taking our eye off the ball. Um, what do you say to that? So first off, I happen to believe that a rising tide lifts all ships. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also happen to believe that an anti-Semite is almost inevitably going to end up being a transphobe or homophobe, because oftentimes hate does not live in specific silos. Now, I'll say that these are these debates are longstanding. There are some in our community, like you're mentioning, um, who believe that we should only be focusing on Jewish issues, specifically anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. um, and that we should not be involved uh, in solidarity with other communities. I think others understand that on some level, these aren't really separate fights. Right. In many ways, our fates are intertwined when we talk about hate and we talk about anti-Semitism. I think many of the greatest human rights luminaries uh, of our time have reminded us of this, whether it was Dr. King saying injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Uh, you know, there are just uh, you know consistent stream of these statements. Um, I, I also don't think it's a it's a case of we're just in this together. Right. I think we need to understand that um, you know, anti-Semitism uh, racism, transphobia, homophobia, sexism, uh, you know, these are all mutually reinforcing uh, systems of oppression. 
uh, and that anti-Semitism both feeds into and off of other forms of bigotry. Again, whether it's racism, transphobia, homophobia. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, you know, let me just say the when you look at what was the deadliest uh, act of anti-Semitic uh, mass violence in the history of the United States, it was the Tree of Life uh, shooting uh, at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And who was it committed by? It was a white supremacist who was driven by anti-immigrant uh, xenophobia because he believed that Jews were responsible for an open border scheme. Um, yeah. And you know, this is just what we see time and time again. Well, I'm sure we'll return to this question later in the hour. But Dan, I want you to stick with us now and uh, return in about 20 minutes when the Q&A session begins. But thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, our second panelist is Dr. Georgette Bennett, who joins us from New York. Uh, she is the founder and president of the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding. Uh, the center is named for her late husband, Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum. Uh, Georgette Bennett is a sociologist by training, an author, an advisor on philanthropy, and an advocate for human rights. Uh, she was a founder of the Multi-Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees, which has become the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council. Dr. Bennett, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. I'm honored to be with you, Robert. Uh, when it when it comes to combating anti-Semitism, uh, you've declared a very clear starting point, which is Jews alone, you've said, cannot beat anti-Semitism. Uh, how dedicated are our, our allies uh, in the fight against anti-Semitism, and do we need more allies? We absolutely need allies, because anti-Semitism, approaching anti-Semitism, dealing with anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem. It's a much broader problem than that. So it's very important to form coalitions and to make common cause with other kinds of groups, because by siloing each of these different hatreds, by Muslims being siloed in terms of Islamophobia, Jews being siloed in terms of anti-Semitism, people of color being siloed because of race. It's very easy to divide and conquer. But when people join together mm -hmm. in coalitions, it becomes much more possible to have an impact in terms of combating all these various forms of hate. Uh, you've mentioned anti-Semitism and Islamophobia as, as, as being uh, related. And I gather in the fight, Jewish and Muslim groups in America cooperate a great deal. Well, that's certainly starting to happen uh, in a big way. Um, I myself, I myself have involved, am involved with two organizations that work together. Uh, you mentioned the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council in the introduction, uh, but also IJMA, the Inter-Jewish Muslim Alliance. I think it's particularly important for Jews and Muslims to make common cause. Uh, we are both minorities in the U.S. with about the same number of people, so the same percentage of the population. And um, there are many areas in which I think we share common interests. One of them is the Christianizing of America. So where does that leave us? Another one has to do with refugees and immigration, uh, certainly reproductive rights. So there are many areas where we can make common cause, even though there are great disagreements right. in terms well, of Israel. Let me ask you about the big disagreement. I mean, is, 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 the, uh, is, is there an effort to find some principles that uh, Jews and Muslims as they work together can agree on or simply not to talk about Israel and Palestinians? Well, in some groups, as a matter of policy, that is not part of the agenda. But I certainly have had some very interesting experience with this. Uh, the organization that I founded in 2013, the Multi-Faith Alliance, which is focused on Syrian war victims, we um, have delivered more than $415 million worth of aid, most of it directly into Syria. That's benefited nearly 4 million Syrian war victims. And a lot of that was done with Syrians and Israelis working together. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that by working together, these sworn enemies were able to rise above hatred, above suspicion. And 
alleviate a tremendous amount of suffering. And it changed hearts and minds. And an example of that is that when the work was revealed uh, in a 45 minute interview with three Syrians who were working with Israelis, um, Al Jazeera picked up that story. And when it went on Al Jazeera's website, Al Jazeera was bashing these Syrians as traitors for working with Israel. But more than 90% of the comments on the website, and this was Al Jazeera mm -hmm. um, in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. This was not Al Jazeera America. So these comments in Arabic bashed Al Jazeera for bashing these Syrians as being traitors and defended the work with Israel. It was quite extraordinary. And we saw this happening over and yeah. over and over again. Uh, Dr. Bennett, I want to. This is unfair because I'm going to ask you for a, a brief answer to a question that we could spend the rest of the the rest of the week talking about. You've spoken of group narcissism as something that we're up against when we're trying to confront anti-Semitism. Explain what is group narcissism? What can be done about it? So, group narcissism is the belief that one's own group has a monopoly on truth. Once you hold that belief, that leads to apocalyptic thinking, which divides the world into the children of light and the children of darkness. And of course, it's the Jews who often end up being the children of darkness. Once you're othering a group, you can then dehumanize them with hate speech. And then it's a very short leap from verbal violence to physical violence. And I think it needs to be addressed in a lot of ways. It, it's a multidimensional thing. Mm -hmm. Number one, um, and kumbaya is not the answer. Mm -hmm. You have to, number one, do deep listening because there's a lot of fear behind hate. And you have to understand what the fear is. Um, you have to understand what attracts people to hate groups. And I can give you one example of um, a former skinhead who said, they gave me power when I felt powerless. They gave me visibility when I felt invisible. They gave me community when I felt alone. So you have to do curious listening. You have to allow them to express their grievances. And using that method, this former skinhead has deprogrammed mm -hmm. many white supremacists. Number two, deplatforming mm -hmm. and going after finances of these groups. Uh, the Charlottesville lawsuit uh, is doing a lot of that. Number three, counter propaganda and deprogramming. You've got to delegitimize the reference group because it's only when that scene is flawed that its adherents will be open to alternate thinking. And we see that happening with the people who have left QAnon, for example. Yes. You have to amplify the message with media. Number four, legal resource. You have to use the available law to combat hate speech and hate crime. Now, hate speech is protected, but incitement to violence is not. And mm -hmm. hate speech is the prelude to incitement. So that's a four-pronged approach that needs to be taken. But I would add a fifth right. prong. And that fifth prong is you need to work together yes. on projects that are important to each group with clear goals. Because Sociology 101, contact and communication is the key to breaking down prejudice, and misconceptions. Georgette Bennett, thank you very much. Stick with us because uh, in a little while we'll have our, our discussion and question and answer session. Our next panelist is the writer Tamara Behrens, who has written about anti-Semitism for the publication Mosaic. Uh, while Tamara Behrens now lives in Washington, D.C., she is, as you'll soon hear, originally from Britain. Uh, she has written about anti-Semitism on the far right as well as on the anti-Israel left. Uh, one of her essays is titled What American Conservatives, uh, Conservatives Can Do About Right-Wing Anti-Semitism. Uh, Tamara Behrens, welcome. Uh, and uh, let's start with the question of Israel, uh, which you've written a good deal about, and how it figures uh, in arguments over contemporary anti-Semitism. How, how do you see it? 
Yes, I think the question of Israel should really be at the forefront um, of our strategy in combating anti-Semitism. And thank you so much, Robert, for having me to be able to talk about this. Um, I am very much inspired by an essay by the late, great Charles Krauthammer written in 1998, in which he talks about the role that the state of Israel occupied even then, uh, 25 years ago, for um, global Jewry. And he makes the case that if anything at this point were to happen to the existence of the state of Israel, it would really mean the collapse of the ability for the Jewish people to go on as a whole, given the endless tragedies that the Jewish people have already faced. And so I personally am a Zionist and I uh, support the state of Israel for a variety of reasons. But I think even in um, a strategic sense, it's evident that the state of Israel today is one of the greatest reasons for the survival and the continuity of the Jewish people. And if we don't prioritize attacks on the state of Israel, mm -hmm. both international threats and also attacks on the nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship, which is both people to people as well as governmental and congressional, um, I think that that really will bode disaster, unfortunately, for the Jewish people. And so uh, something that's been a primary focus of mine in combating anti-Semitism on the left of the political spectrum is really highlighting the lack of any difference, any daylight between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Um, it's very difficult to find people that are genuinely anti-Zionist because they don't believe in states whatsoever, for example. Almost every uh, incident, you'll find that someone that is against the existence of the state of Israel is doing so because they have a problem with the Jewish people. Um, and so but, that's been a hard battle on the left. Yeah, please. But if, but if someone says, uh... Uh, I, I'm, I'm okay with a Jewish country uh, I'm, that, that, that I have no problem with, but um, I'm against militant religious nationalism, no matter what the religion, uh, uh, Judaism included. I'm worried about, about what I'm hearing out of Israeli politics. And also, I wonder, Israel now has a higher per capita uh, GDP than Western Europe. Uh, why are we still giving them billions of dollars in military aid? To you, is that the mark of an anti-Semite asking those questions, or is it? Can you imagine a someone who's skeptical of U.S. policy and who can either be answered successfully or, or not? I don't think that view is inherently anti-Semitic, but I do think it's a problem, and I think uh, the publicization of false claims like that—that that the U.S.-Israel relationship only benefits the state of Israel when, in fact, it's actually the United States that benefits greatly from being able to support its main ally in the Middle East, um, a security partner in many ways. Um, I think that's very dangerous. I think that um, those views do have more popularity today on the far right and on the far left. And I think um, it's the popularity of false claims like that that actually lead to a rise in anti-Semitic opinions from people like Elon Musk, for example, who has re who we've who's been mentioned already, yeah. who's retweeted a lot of uh, really noxious figures on the far right who are overtly both anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist. Um, I think that's a huge problem. But at the same time, on the campus left, and obviously college campuses um, are the environments in which our future leaders are produced, we see that anti-Semitism is at an all-time all high. There's a 41% increase in incidents on camp college campuses in the United States, and they were already high before that. Um, and on campus, primarily the way that Jews experience anti-Semitism is through uh, anti-Israel um, incidents, not just speakers that say overtly anti-Israel things, uh, calling for the destruction of the Jewish state, but also um, attacks against those who want to be proud Jews, display an Israeli flag um, in their dorm, so on and so forth, have a mezuzah on their door. Um, so I, I think it's all connected. I don't mm -hmm. think that it's inherently anti-Semitic to uh, have legitimate criticism of the state of Israel, but I think we focus a little too much on that, and we should be more attuned to the fact that this environment of just it's acceptable to be have much more focus on what the state of Israel does wrong as opposed to a variety of countries around the world that are engaging in severe human rights abuses, um, refugee crises, right. as we've talked about already. I think that that focus on Israel is is destructive. Let me ask you a question again. Uh, it's, it's unfair. I'm asking you for the 60-second version now. But I mentioned <laughs> the title of your essay, uh, What American Conservatives Can Do About Anti-Semitism. In a nutshell, what can American conservatives do about anti-Semitism on the right? 
Yes, great question. Thank you. So I am a conservative. Um, that's been my home for really the entirety of my intellectual development. And I care deeply about the preservation of conservative institutions uh, in America. So I'm talking about magazines, think tanks, institutions that bring ideas for, you know, not necessarily uh, political institutions. Um, and I think that I've noticed that um, a lot of these are increasingly beholden to an atmosphere in American public life in which um, whoever shouts the loudest, no matter really the substance of what they're trying to say, um, is able to get their message through just merely because of the way social media is organized um, in favor of these sort of individuals that used to be on the fringes and really organized against, I think, established institutions that uh, we should be showing loyalty to. Um, so what can American conservatives do? Um, I think that we need to be um, really aware of the spreading of anti-Semitism on the far right and how that impacts the conservative mainstream. Anti-Semitism absolutely exists on the far left. And you know I've just talked about anti-Zionism, which I do think is primarily a problem on the far left. That being said, um, these ideas are beginning to take hold on the far right as well, um, with individuals who have far too much popularity, you know, hundreds of thousands of combined followers, millions of followers on social media websites, propagating the view that um, there's a Jewish lobby that controls the United States, and that's the reason for uh, US support for Israel. And we really need to be making the case that US support for Israel benefits both the United States and Israel and the Jewish people, um, and that the Jewish people are a special entity. Um, the Jewish people, I think, have given the world so much, you know, monotheism, um, morality, uh, in my view, really comes from, from the Jewish faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we need to be comfortable in saying, yes, the Jewish people are different. We're not like everybody else. And that's a good thing. I don't think we should shy away from that conversation by any means and trying to sort of create this uh, this false narrative that the Jewish yeah. people are just like any other minority. That's not true. We have to own who we are um, and we have to be honest about that and we should be proud of who we are. Tamara Barons, thank you very much. And uh, we'll be back to you when all of the panelists talk together in just a few minutes. But first we turn to our, our fourth panelist, uh, Ted Deutsch, uh, who is the president of the American Jewish Committee, Chief Executive Officer, I should say. Uh, from 2010 until uh, 2022, Ted Deutsch was a Democratic member of the House of Representatives from Florida. Uh, his district included parts of Broward and Palm Beach counties. Uh, in the House, Deutsch chaired the Ethics Committee. Uh, and before uh, serving in Washington, uh, Ted Deutsch spent four years in the Florida State Senate. Uh, and uh, the demands of his schedule mean that he's just with us for, uh, for a few minutes. Good to see you, Ted Deutsch. How are you? That's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Robert. Uh, let's let's hear from you on the Biden initiative. It's unprecedented. We've heard from our representative from the ADL, uh, Dan Granote, of all of the of the new features of it. Uh, have things actually happened? That is, uh, uh, is there motion on Capitol Hill toward passing things that are urged in this initiative? Are there uh, are, are are companies changing their policies all around us? What what's going on? Uh, yeah, as a as a matter of fact, uh, there's first of all, it's it is unprecedented. Uh, we don't take for granted the fact that uh, a community like ours, the Jewish community is very small. Uh, the fact that the White House is committed to move forward with this strategy is beca because they acknowledge that anti-Semitism doesn't only affect the Jewish community, it affects the country as a whole. And it's the reason that it's not just limited to actions that the executive branch can take or actions that Congress can take, but it's a whole of society approach. That said, mm -hmm. uh, there have been some some significant steps already. The Small Business Administration, again, SBA, not, not a, a part of the government you would think spends time tackling anti-Semitism. Uh, we just recently signed a strategic alliance memo with the SBA to jointly address anti-Semitism with small businesses. The administrator and I had a town hall meeting with businesses who, who want to be able to respond. They didn't have the tools. We'll be doing that now all over the country. The U.S. Conference of Mayors, again, this is not a congressional action, although Congress is busy looking at all of the ways yeah. they can be involved. And I'm looking forward to, to engaging with them when I'm there in October. Uh, but the Conference of Mayors is now working to ensure that mayors across the country 
can follow through on what's in the national strategy. We've provided them with a mayor's guide to implementing the national strategy. We've already seen successes around the country, Department of Agriculture, businesses, universities. There have already been a number of significant steps taken to address anti-Semitism. And it's our goal and the reason we created a task force to focus on this, to make sure that this isn't a plan that goes on the shelf that gets referred to during mm -hmm. political season, but is one that is actually reviewed and a focus of attention every day because these challenges are so significant and impact the community overall. But when you speak of, say, the Small Business Administration getting involved, yeah. are, are we talking in, in, in that case about uh, uh, issues of, of making work, of, of not letting uh, uh, work rules make it impossible for an observant Jew to work at, uh, somewhere? Or, I mean, we're not addressing, in that case, violent crime or uh, uh, anti-Semitic, you know, painting swastikas on walls, are we? Sure. Sure. The, the, SBA, the SBA actually uh, is very active responding to emergencies. Mm -hmm. uh, this is this is just something that that they ought to also focus on. So mm -hmm. it means it means everything across the board from small small business owners that are owned by uh, by members of the Jewish community that face anti-Semitism and helping them respond to those very specific acts to businesses that don't think about how to accommodate their Jewish employees how to respond when their Jewish employees feel at risk, uh, the, the kind of information that doesn't come naturally to them. They're, they're busy trying to, to, to make ends meet and, and, and profit in their company. Uh, this is a serious effort on the part of the SBA overall and its regional offices now uh, to partner, in this case, to partner with us to, to ensure that they're covering the whole range of issues that can help protect the Jewish community. To, to uh, build a strategy or to embrace an administration's strategy uh, to counter anti-Semitism uh, requires, I, I think, some at least some theory as to why we are in a moment of increased anti-Semitism. Uh, and I just wonder what, how you answer that question. Why uh, should we be seeing a spike in, uh, in uh, anti-Jewish hate crimes or incidents right now? Sure. Well, look, first, it, it starts, Robert, with an acknowledgement that anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews is is really at a base level. These are conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and they're conspiracy theories that throughout time have led to violence against the Jewish community, expulsion of Jews from nations, obviously, in the worst case, the attempted annihilation of the Jewish people during the Holocaust. Uh, so if you if you think about what's gone on in America and around the world, uh, COVID actually helped bring conspiracy theories front and center. The, the rise of QAnon uh, obviously brought conspiracy theories, many of them anti-Semitic, fundamentally anti-Semitic to the fore. We saw conspiracy theories around the last election. We've seen conspiracy theories spread uh, even among, uh, even in, in Congress espoused by members of Congress. So when you see conspiracy theories rise overall, it is unfortunately the case throughout history that it's the Jewish community that's so often the, the scapegoat. And then add to that the normalization of anti-Semitism through social media, the fact that when Kanye West decides to go on an anti-Semitic rant on Twitter, that has repercussions far beyond inviting the anti-Semites out from under the rocks to hang banners across the I-4 in California to, de to deposit anti-Semitic flyers and yeah. leaflets across the country. So we've got to tackle all of this if we're going to seriously confront this challenge. Just, I'm just curious, how do you, for, for people who, who wonder uh, how one can uh, control or uh, uh, keep anti-Semitic speech off of social media, uh, what is it, what for you is the dividing line? What is the red line that uh, separates ugly speech that's defended by the First Amendment and that people we should expect people will will engage in, and on the other hand, uh, speech that steps into an area where it should be um, uh, suppressed? Um, well, again, I, I think Robert, we have to start with the acknowledgement that uh, that social media is. Uh, these are these are major businesses that yeah. have very clear rules about what one can and cannot do on the platform. This isn't 
this isn't the town square. This isn't a, a public space. And so, yes, it's important for us to acknowledge that there are broad there, there's a broad exchange of ideas that happens all the time. It's America. Of course, we support the First Amendment. But at the same time, if someone doesn't follow the rules of uh, of the uh, the company, then those rules should be enforced. And in the case of social media companies, that means making it clear that if someone engages in anti-Semitism and in, in Holocaust denial and revisionism, that that there's no place for that on the platform. If someone engages in conspiracy theories about Jews, that that shouldn't be tolerated. These are the conversations that we have with the social media companies. This is this is what I discussed with with the CEO of of X just a couple of weeks ago in our office, and uh, and suggested some very specific steps that can be taken to help better identify anti-Semitism, make sure that there aren't blind spots, that everyone understands that language that they might not think is problematic is often rooted in a, a really dark and and, and awful uh, anti-Semitic history. And by doing that, uh, we can start to, to ensure that the, the spaces online are, are safer and safer for everyone to participate. Ted Deutsch, thanks a lot for uh, for being with us today during uh, the time that you could spare. It's good to see you again. And I'd like to bring, so you bet. I'd like to bring back right now Dan Grenote, Georgette Bennett, and uh, Tamara Behrens. And um, uh, we'll toss around a couple of questions. I have one that I'd like to hear from all of you since it hasn't come up yet. But the, uh, the first pillar of the White House initiative uh, is uh, it deals ultimately with Holocaust education. And I know that it's very common when when somebody uh, uh, commits a, a, a public act of, of anti-Semitism, you know, bring him to the Holocaust Museum and and uh, let the you know the ball players see what what happened in Europe uh, seventy years ago. Uh, I uh, the, the, the the writer Dara Horn has written about how uh, people love dead Jews uh, and has said that instead the things that Tamara Barons was talking about. Uh, that, that Jews should be responding to to anti-Semitism with are more positive. What what role does the Holocaust and what role does Holocaust education play in combating anti-Semitism? Uh, and we'll we'll start with Dan Grenote and then uh, go in that order. Dan. Well, thanks for asking my question. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the most interesting things I've learned in my time with the ADL is that even the most basic information about the Holocaust. Just knowing how many Jews were murdered in the Holocaust is correlated with significantly lower levels of anti-Semitism. You know, we've seen through several of our studies through our Center on Anti-Semitism Research um, that strong evidence points that those who have studied the Holocaust, particularly if it's at the school level, have lower levels of anti-Semitism long term. Georgette Bennett. So I have a slightly different take. I think it's very important to popularize history, to make it commercial. I think that one of the programs that had the greatest impact on anti-Semitism and understanding the Holocaust was the series called The Holocaust that came out, oh, several decades ago now. But the impact of it was absolutely tremendous in terms of attitudes toward Jews and the understanding of the Holocaust. I think we need to do much more of that, popularize it, use popular vehicles to talk about history. And uh, Tamara Behrens, do, do you think it's, it's a central part of uh, combating anti-Semitism? I think it's important, but I think ultimately Holocaust education can unfortunately be meaningless if it isn't tied to education about who Jews are today, what living, thriving Jews look like. Um, and obviously that involves education about the state of Israel, the foundation of the state of Israel. And it also involves education about Jewish Americans and the different types of Jewish Americans that exist, what they look like, how they practice. Um, I do agree with a lot of Dara Horn's point, as you mentioned from her book, People Love Dead Jews. Um, that people have a discomfort with Jewish survival, Jewish thriving. Um, and I think that perhaps comes from this emphasis on tragedy without really telling the other side of the story that yes, um, there was a terrible tragedy that we should forever remember as Jews. 
and Americans should absolutely be educated and aware. Um, but that being said, after the tragedy does come survival and renewal, the miracle of the state of Israel, and also the thriving of Jewish communities in America. A viewer, Bob Olesh, who writes, uh, I am Jewish. How can anti-Semitism be eliminated if most people need a scapegoat when something goes wrong in their life? Jewish people have been a traditional scapegoat for 3,000 years. Uh, sorry to be a pessimist, but unfortunately, anti-Semitism is something we just need to live with during our lifetimes. Happy New Year. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, there's a, there's a pessimistic view. Uh, Georgette uh, Bennett, um, shouldn't we assume that uh, you know, 10, 20 years after a successful initiative from the Biden administration, there'll still be anti-Semites? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I think there will always be anti-Semites. But I think it is possible to reduce the extent of anti-Semitism by engaging in some of the activities that we've all been talking about here. And to Tamara's point, I think there is also a matter of religious literacy. There's such a tremendous misunderstanding of Judaism and that the roots of the religions that a lot of the anti-Semites practice, really whatever what they consider good in their religions comes from Judaism. And this is something that I think they need to understand. Tamara, I think, was talking about this while, while you interviewed her. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dan Granote, uh, thoughts about, uh, is, is, is uh, pessimism perhaps warranted here? Uh, you know, I think, the, the key word there was eliminated. I think the effort is to combat it, not to eliminate any form of hate. And I think you know, we're talking about what is required over here, right? Um, and you know, I think that the short answer is there is no silver bullet to combat anti-Semitism. Rather, it takes a whole society and a whole of government approach, whether that is utilizing Congress and the executive branch and state and local governments through the government side, whether that is on the K through 12 education and college campuses, whether the media through programs like this, uh, whether it's through community centers, right? It, it is about taking that holistic uh, approach. It's frankly why the national strategy is so impressive is because it takes that breadth and depth approach. And it's something that ADL has through our combat plan uh, attempted to um, use as well. It seems to me that in a way, the, uh, the, simp the simplest uh, anti-Semitism to describe and to recognize is, the, is perhaps the most odious, uh, the uh, white Christian nationalist KKK uh, neo-Nazi sympathizer who checks all the boxes for, for political repugnance. But um, what about traditional allies and the drive for civil rights? Uh, uh, when those groups come together and say, uh, by the way, we're not just opponents of, uh, of uh, we're not just against opponents of voting rights. We're not just against homophobes and misogynists and xenophobes. We're also anti-Zionist and against people who support Israel. Are old alliances uh, surviving the current rise of anti-Semitism, Dr. Bennett? Well, it's very interesting because uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. is just about uh, to produce a series, I think it's a four part series called Black and Jewish in America, in which he is making the case for reviving the traditional African-American Jewish alliance. But we have to identify the issues around which alliances can be formed because it's not Jews who can combat anti-Semitism. It's got to be the non-Jews who combat anti-Semitism. The uh, Friday night after the Tree of Life uh, attack in Pittsburgh, going to uh, services at my synagogue, uh, packed with local uh, non-Jews uh, who wanted to express their solidarity with the uh, uh, Jewish community, in that case of uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, Tamara, uh, thoughts about this? I think that finding allies is incredibly important. Um, it's something that I've always prioritized um, in the UK. Um, I grew up in London, very multicultural, and tried to form as many ties as I could with um, other Middle Eastern minorities, such as the Kurds, um, the Assyrians, and sort of bring them to the fore 
um, alongside Israeli voices um, and really try and forge that bond. And I will say, um, having moved to the United States, I found that there are many Christians that have been very strong allies um, of the Jewish people. Um, and I think a lot of the misconceptions of Christian Zionism are, I hope, um, starting to uh, to reduce um, seeing the kind of genuine support, uh, not just for the state of Israel, but also um, support for Jews facing anti-Semitism from prominent Christian voices. I think there's a lot more um, that can be done. Um, again, uh, moving away from the dead Jews paradigm and towards the living Jews paradigm. Uh, I myself am organizing a number of Shabbat dinners in the coming months with some Christian groups um, in order to encourage greater knowledge and awareness about the beauty of Shabbat, um, the Jewish Sabbath. Um, and it's something that I hope to expand to other religious minorities as well. Dan Grenote, uh, thoughts about this? Yeah, look, I think that the loudest the loudest uh, voice makes the most noise. But I think in reality, we are standing on the shoulders of giants today when it comes to um, partnership and, and allyship. Look, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington here in Washington, D.C., um, and we saw the strength of, of the Jewish-African-American partnership in the fight for civil rights. But I also think sometimes when we talk about this joint partnership of, of communities, you know, the sort of most common narrative is that this really began in the 60s. And the truth is this goes back so much further than that, right? Whether it is going back to the 1800s when African-American communities took up collection funds in churches to help repair Jewish communities who were facing violence from pogroms, whether it was HBCUs who really helped save the Jewish intellectual class from annihilation of the Holocaust by providing professorships and uh, which created visas in order to bring people over. I think that's the real story over here when oftentimes we end up focusing uh, on, on headlines or, or someone who makes a lot of uh, attention on a social media platform. I'd like to build on the point that Dan just made. It's very important to appreciate the risks that our allies sometimes take. Um, and we don't hear enough expressions of appreciation. When, when we were working with Syrians and getting them working with Israelis, they were putting targets on their back, their own backs by doing that. During Vatican Council II, a lot of Jews were very critical about what was going on with the drafting of Nostra Aetate. And they didn't fully understand the risks that that the church was taking in terms of that document, the risks that Catholics um, were experiencing in countries, especially Arab countries that were opposed to anything in that document that was nice to Jews. Mm -hmm. So when we form these alliances, we have to be aware of the risks that our allies are sometimes taking. And we need to appreciate that. Uh, uh, that that's, that's an interesting point. Uh, that uh, it's not always uh, it's not always easy uh, for people to take to take the side of Jews in arguments over anti-Semitism. Uh, people from from uh, countries in the Middle East might might find that quite dangerous. Uh, in 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 fact, um, even on U.S. college campuses. Well, here's what the uh, White House strategy to counter anti-Semitism says about campuses. It says, Jewish students and educators are targeted for derision and exclusion on college campuses, often because of their real or perceived views about the state of Israel. Uh, when Jews are targeted because of their beliefs or their identity, when Israel is singled out because of anti-Jewish hatred, that is anti-Semitism, and that is unacceptable. Uh, uh, Tamara Barron, it's a pretty, pretty strong statement uh, uh, coming from the White House. Absolutely, and I think that statement is, is welcomed. Um, Anti-Semitism on college campuses has an impact for generations to come. It creates an environment in which Jewish students presently feel uncomfortable being who they are. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, college campuses are obviously the incubator of future leaders um, in the United States and globally. And if we want to ensure a future in which people are broadly supportive of 
the basic survival of the Jewish people and obviously of the state of Israel's right to exist, then we absolutely need to do more to combat anti-Semitism on, on college campuses. Uh, here's a question from, from a viewer. How can American companies deal with anti-Semitic speech and racial prejudice among employees? Dan Grenot, uh, how can Yeah, I, I, I'd love to start with that. Um, you know, ADL recently released, released uh, what we're calling a workplace pledge against anti-Semitism. This is how we're trying to translate the national strategy into the into companies. You know, this is whether it's using uh, anti-Semitism, DEIA, discrimination, uh, anti-discrimination training, whether it is adopting some of the principles within the national strategy. You know, uh, we're also, we've been working with several agencies to help implement it, whether it is EEOC or OPM or OMB or, or any of the many acronymed agencies in the government that are responsible for the workforce to ensure that people know their rights. Because I think what we often find is people just don't understand what is something to issue a complaint. And if there is a complaint, where to go, how to do it, what to go about in order to ensure that they are protected uh, as a Jewish employee. You know, I asked uh, Ted Deutsch a few minutes ago uh, when he was with us uh, for a uh, an explanation, of a, th a theory of of why it is that we're talking about a, a spike in uh, in anti-Semitic uh, incidents and hate crimes, and I haven't heard from the three of you on that on, on that score. And um, Dan, let's let's start with you. I mean, why do you think this is happening, Rand? Is it simply the availability of a medium uh, that gives life, that is social media, uh, that that uh, gives life to conspiratorial thinking? Uh, is it um, an economic crisis? The uh, uh, is this a a symptom of the COVID pandemic? Why? Why now? Can I can I just say yes to that? You know, I, I think what's so interesting about anti-Semitism, right? There is no single, just how there's no single solution. There's no single cause. Right? It's a conspiratorial theory. Jews are both too powerful and yet also subhuman. Jews run the world and yet should not belong in, in any room. And I think all the factors you listed and then some, it, it is partially social media and the driving of the conspiratorial theories. It is partially economic downturn. People look to meet to see where anti-Semitism uh, as, as a solution. I think one of the things about anti-Semitism that we see is that it mutates to match whatever is the need of the day. Right, it becomes the answer to whatever question you have. Why is your life so bad? Why is your community at fault? Why are why is there war? Why is there famine? Why is there uh, you know a global pandemic? Um, Anti-Semitism becomes the false answer to answer any of these questions. So it's it's a solution. It explains what appears to be an inexplicable world. Aha! There must be a conspiracy uh, that is uh, manipulating events. Uh, in, in somebody else's favor, because it's not in my favor that uh, the things are happening. Uh, Tamara, exactly what's, what, what's your view of why, why we're experiencing increased anti-Semitism? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think we're witnessing a very troublesome decline in traditional institutions, marriage, uh, religious observance in America. I think all of this uh, is leading to, um, for, for many Americans, a crisis of loneliness, lack of direction, and really just creating all of the conditions to allow people to turn to extremist um, ideas online, both on the far left and on the far right. And so I think a resolution to this has to be strengthening the institutions that provide people with, with meaning um, and to uh, try and discourage as much as we can the rise of individuals on social media gaining a lot of power and influence without really any credentials that uh, should allow them to do so. Dr. Georgette Bennett, you've described the group narcissism at work. You've described a conspiratorial thinking. But why now? Why, why should all this be, be on the rise at this moment? Well, I'm a sociologist. And everything that Tamara and Dan have said is, uh, is absolutely correct. But there's another factor as well. Anti-Semitism has become acceptable. It's become acceptable. And what we have to do is we make it unacceptable in the same way that we made smoking unacceptable. Smoking is no longer cool. Well, anti-Semitism has become cool. Well, I think I, I think what what did in smoking ultimately was a, a serious federal government action, and. Uh, uh, heavy taxation so that a, a pack of cigarettes costs a lot more than it uh, it used to when I was smoking. Uh, 
well, how, how do you do you something can, comparable can, to that? Yes. Well, we are doing something comparable. Um, as I mentioned during um, our one-to-one -one conversation, Robert, yes. you can employ taxation, you can employ deplatforming. And that is, I mean, that was done with the Ku Klux Klan a long time ago. The FBI uh, went after them, uh, the IRS went after them. And uh, the IRS is what ultimately bankrupted them. The same thing is going on now with the lawsuits against these extremist groups um, in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. So yes, you can employ the same techniques, but you also have to look at the sociological angle, which is what makes it socially acceptable, and then also tackling that. And that means counter-messaging, counter-propaganda and delegitimizing the groups that promote it. I'd like to hear from the three of you uh, as we wrap up about how uh, how hopeful uh, you are. Uh, Tamara, uh, you know, I, I remember um, interviewing the uh, uh, the English lawyer Anthony Julius uh, about a year after Jeremy Corbyn had been had been pushed out of the leadership of the British Labour Party. Corbyn had at least uh, not found it, uh, found nothing wrong with consorting with anti-Semites, it seemed, and if not encouraging them in some respects. A year later, I was curious, and uh, Anthony Julia said, no, there's there's been real improvement. Uh, changing leaders made a really big uh, uh, impact on, on the, on the Labour Party. And uh, no, th things are much better right now. I was surprised by how how positive he was about things. Um, how how optimistic, how hopeful generally are you? Yes, no, that's a great question. Thank you. We haven't uh, spoken really about the UK given there's so much to talk yeah. about in, in the US. Um, I think I'm overall optimistic in that I do think there is a historic precedent for um, friendships between uh, the American people and the Jewish people and obviously American Jews. Um, America was really the first nation to grant religious liberty to the Jewish people. Um, and I think even today we see, you know, a flourishing set of communities around the country. Um, and I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful, certainly, compared to other areas around the world where, um, you know, leaders are less serious about really tackling anti-Semitism. That being said, um, since you mentioned the British example, what really had to occur in order to uh, have Jeremy Corbyn pushed out from the Labour Party and, and sanctioned as he deserved to be um, was a concerted effort community-wide um, that didn't start from established communal institutions. It started mm. from grassroots institutions that spoke up about something that they noticed that they felt the Jewish community as a whole, the organized Jewish community, wasn't doing enough to challenge um, and then eventually, thankfully, that spread to a community-wide approach. So it was a very challenging battle, required a lot of hard work. But I think with hard work, we can we can and should be optimistic in the U.S. And uh, Dan Grenot? So, you know, you, you, we mentioned earlier that ADL has been tracking anti-Semitic uh, attitudes since the 60s and, and incidents since the 70s. And, and we're seeing sort of high rises and, and high record levels of both. Um, and yet, you know, I, I sometimes say that the Kanye is, is right banner that was over the 405 or 305 or whichever highway it was in, the, in LA, I think it was 405, mm -hmm. um, you know, that did more to elevate and amplify the fight against anti-Semitism than so much else that's happened, right? I think in many ways, that was the moment where it translated from those of us who spend our life studying this to everyday layman's terms to, that they recognize that this was an issue. You know, you mentioned earlier that uh, we need to do, or maybe Georgette mentioned, that we need to, similar to smoking, make it uncool. Right? Mm -hmm. What's cooler than the federal government over here? Right. <laughs> I think this national strategy in, in so many ways really offers us an opportunity to transform the fight against anti-Semitism. So, you know, a plan is only as good as it's implemented. There's a reason that we're spending at ADL so much time helping to implement this strategy. But 12 months from now, I think there's an opportunity, and I'm optimistic to say, that we have a chance to be in, in a whole different space than we were today if we're able to enact everything that's in the plan. Georgette Bennett, you have the last word. And is it an optimistic one? Yes. So a lot of things make me optimistic. Bagels make me optimistic. Bagels have been mainstreamed. Kabbalah <laughs> bracelets have been mainstreamed. I hear Yiddishisms coming out of absolutely non-Jewish politicians and celebrities 
and others. I see Jewish presidents of universities that had a numerous clauses that limited the number of Jews in the past, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, they, they all now have had Jewish presidents. I see, um, I see the white and black and brown faces in Congress. I see the Jews who have been elected to Congress. All of this makes me optimistic. And I see great curiosity about Judaism. Well, thanks to all of our panelists, uh, Dr. Georgette Bennett, uh, Tamara Behrens, Dan Granote, uh, and also thanks to Ted Deutsch, who was with us earlier. Uh, many thanks also to Joshua Plout, Ronnie Gibigliano, and Ryan Sutton of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, which produces Global Connections, and our technical director, Bobby Grandone. Thank you also to our sponsor, the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, which is a 501c3 national charitable organization representing in the United States Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv. Uh, the website of the group is www.afrmc.org. Uh, join us next month's program in honor of uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global Connections, Navigating the New Normal. See you next month. Stay healthy and stay safe. <laughs>